Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Bruce Isaacs, author of the book, The Art of Pure Cinema, Hitchcock and His Imitators, published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. One of the major concepts to come out of Hitchcock's famous interviews with Francois Truffaut is his belief that film should be an immersive visual experience, or pure cinema. Over time, a number of filmmakers expanded on this concept, often in homage to Hitchcock. In our talk, Bruce and I discuss the idea of pure cinema and review Brian De Palma and other filmmakers and how they presented the concept. Welcome, Bruce Isaacs. Hi, Bruce. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me. We are here today talking about your book, The Art of Pure Cinema, Hitchcock and His Imitators, published this year, 2020, from Oxford University Press. Uh, What is interesting about this book is with that title, the first line of the book is, I think, one of the most interesting first lines I've ever read in a book, which is, this is not a book about Hitchcock. And yet, that's included in your title. But as, as we'll talk about, there's a pretty good reason why you said that, because it really isn't about Hitchcock's films so much as as you also talk about the imitators. So um, thank you for joining me. We are opposite ends of the world. You're in Sydney, Australia, and I'm in Kentucky, Ohio, United States. And uh, but we were able to find time together. So thank you for joining me. Now, complete pleasure. Thanks for that statement about the opening line. I cannot tell you the degree to which I labored over. I had that opening line before I even fully had the book, to be honest, because I love Hitchcock and I love pure cinema, but I knew that's not where the book was going to be. So I'm so glad that that's the interpretation you took because that's what I want people to get. Well, there's plenty of books written about Hitchcock, so it's great that we uh, look at Hitchcock's uh, legacy because that's just as important as what he did. So let's start, though, with a little bit about your background. Uh, You are in Sydney, Australia, as I mentioned. Um, You've actually written other books before, at least two that I saw, and obviously done other work. What uh, is your background? How did you get into film as a career, so to speak, as far as at least somewhat for writing purposes? And um, let's talk a little bit about how you got to this book. Well, so I I suppose I could say that I have a long narrative of a love of film. And that has always guided me in in my career. And fortunately, I stumbled into a career where I could explore this love and sort of obsession with film on a professional level. And I, my area that I focus on and what I particularly enjoy are the kinds of films that push the boundaries of art as a, as a form and particularly of cinema as a form. So my earlier work, uh, to be honest, was building up to this book. And I've since said to, to colleagues and friends that I kind of see this as a, as a great time in my academic career because if I had had, um, I suppose, the the avenues to say to a publisher like Oxford, I want to do another book on Hitchcock. When I started my career, I would have done this book first because this is where my real love of cinema is. My other work is on um, how does cinema change over the century? Um, what are some of the big stylistic moments, some of the big technological moments, and how do we attach that to all kinds of things like the way we experience movies, the way spectators watch movies? And so I would say that. This book, The Art of Pure Cinema, comes out of trying to bring the 15 years of my pre-book career, pre-this book career, to a head with maybe the two filmmakers that perplex me and intrigue me the most, Hitchcock and Brian De Palma. So it's really a book. Other authors have done this. De Palma has talked extensively about a love of Hitchcock. 
I kind of wanted to put that on trial. I wanted to interrogate it at very deep levels and then to come up with my own judgment. Could I explain to myself why I keep going back to their movies? You know, why does this make such powerful sense to me when I also know that at least in equal proportion, people loathe Brian De Palma. So it was a kind of, I wanted to validate a huge legacy of Hitchcock, but also a future legacy um, for Brian De Palma. And it, we actually took, before we started talking, um, I'm, before I started recording, we talked briefly and I mentioned that Brian De Palma is someone that I enjoy as a filmmaker, but he's also incredibly polarizing. And even back in the older ones, I mean, most of what I know of De Palma um, probably is through Body Double and Mission Impossible up to that point in his earlier ones as well. And I did watch the uh, doc, his documentary, the documentary about his career that's it's available here in the United States on Netflix. So I was able to watch it yesterday, which sort of helped because it gave me a quick review of his career because some of the later films I have not seen. And I'm actually looking forward to going back to catch up a little bit because it mm. sounds like from the bits and pieces I got from the documentary, it, it, there's definitely a lot there. But we also will spend some time also talking about some of the other uh, filmmakers that you uh, brought up in the book as far as this, the, your, your concepts. But we do want to, obviously, De Palma is very important to what you're trying to point out. And But yes, there's no, he even says it in the documentary, Pauline Kael is one of the few people, one of the few reviewers who, re, who he felt got him. And yes. she consistently. And I think, to be honest, without Pauline Kale, I don't know that De Palma ends up having that. You're right, polarizing, but at the same time, incredibly visible, and to a large degree, engaging 1980s. Pauline Kale is the person who explicitly says De Palma is the true American auteur that comes after the French New Wave, and nobody would have thought that a critic like Pauline Kael would say something like that. So uh, I think you're absolutely right. Pauline Kael, as she did for Robert Altman, um, she creates this, this mystique around the Palmer. And I believe, I mean, she does so much close contact criticism and work with the Palmer, even all the way through a film like Casualties of War, which was enormously polarizing. I mean, this is the great era of the, Ameri the American Vietnam War film. Mm -hmm. She says this is by far the best of them. Nobody else was saying that at the time. So she's an interesting figure in American film criticism. So you're an associate professor at uh, the University of Sydney. What is your is your specialty film studies there, or or is yes. it just a part of what you do there? No, no, no. I'm an associate professor in film studies. Have you so, been? Have you been able to talk about some of your ideas as far as classes that you've taught and? Absolutely. I test all my ideas out on students That's and I feed off of them, to be honest. So um, there's actually a point in the book where I talk about showing the split diopter shot in The Untouchables to a class. And I vividly recall, this is probably four or five years ago, I vividly recall a student saying, that looks so incredibly fake. Why would anybody do that? And that, two, three years later while I'm writing, becomes the seed of a whole chapter in this book. So I test everything out on the students are the most wonderful sort of interlocutors uh, in film studies, because to be honest, most students are in their own interesting ways obsessed with film. Well, that's good. I mean, yes, I've talked to a number of other authors and almost a, a, to a person if they're if they have regular access to students, the students tend to be their major uh, <laughs> sounding boards, at least for a Absolutely. lot of the the, the the nuts and bolts. We have our colleagues, but sometimes students give you better feedback because, you know, they're there. They will. It'll tell you something that you didn't get and they're yes. spotting it. So that's great. And you're right. Colleagues are often also like me thinking quite a blinkered way about the discipline. Students, I think, have this slightly wide eye. They're coming at it from potentially very different ways of thinking. And if you can distill that and import it into your own thinking, I just think it's fantastic all around. So the book, as we've already talked about, The Art of Pure Cinema, and the key obvious words to that is pure cinema. In your introduction, you actually subtitle it The Myth of Pure Cinema, mm. as if maybe it doesn't exist, the myth. Yes. But obviously, your argument is 
there is a concept of pure cinema and that its major contributor, major person who started it was Alfred Hitchcock, or is the most well-known person of pure cinema, purely cinematic film. And of course, it comes out of his uh, conversations with Francois Truffaut, Truffaut excuse me, yeah. which are very famous. But uh, could you talk a little bit about, for people who might not know as much about these interviews, is it uh, where did this whole concept, this, this, these discussions start from? Right. So Truffaut, uh, Francois Truffaut, so their conversations of 1962 are now legendary, not only in film studies, but in generally the world of film criticism and even amongst many, many filmmakers. Truffaut is that most interesting of filmmakers, uh, French director, writer, and Truffaut, along with his friend and, uh, and a deep collaborator in many ways, Jean-Luc Godard, they are pretty much charged with inventing the French New Wave. They started it in late 1959, early 1960. So the reason Truffaut becomes so instrumental in what Hitchcock is going to do in these discussions is that very quickly Truffaut and a number of his close colleagues in France identify Hitchcock as somebody worth taking very seriously. And it's really important to note here, Hitchcock is making movies from the early to mid-20s. So when the French filmmakers who considered themselves radical, they were going to overturn the orthodoxy, when they come to make films, they take Hitchcock as a model. They, they, they look at Hitchcock as the, the, the sort of shining light in what cinema can be as an artistic form. So Truffaut, the story goes that he had always wanted to do this set of conversations, but obviously with the sheer amount of coverage that, that, that he has with Hitchcock, this was a huge project. He manages to convince Hitchcock to undertake this set of interviews in 1962. Um, and they are not only a kind of celebration of Hitchcock, they absolutely are that. Truffaut makes no apologies for pretty openly showing his admiration and sort of uncritical adoration of Hitchcock. But I've got to say, when you read that, and you can get this in book form, or you can watch the documentary footage of it, um, I just think it's one of the best examples of two filmmakers talking about what the art form is. It's stunningly precise, it's interesting, it's imaginative, and Hitchcock is candid and extremely dogged in his theories about what a good film should be. So all of that coalesces around this great moment in 1962. Those interviews become the basis, I think, of a wave of Hitchcock analysis, admiration, the so-called rise of the acolytes like Brian De Palma. So they become a source for people actually looking at North by Northwest or Vertigo or Rear Window. And my, my argument in, in a sort of circuitous way in the book is, and I work through the interviews in great detail, all of this obsession with pure cinema starts there. For me. And even though I trace it back to the French avant-garde of the 20s, where American filmmakers, where mass culture starts getting interested, I think is in this set of interviews. Yeah, as you pointed out, Hitchcock had a long career in Britain. And then finally, in the mid 40s, came over to the United States and had a whole second career. Uh, the Hitchcock most people know about is that period. The, the average film goer who 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 has heard of Hitchcock are only mostly remembering these. And yet he, his whole career, you know, what he did in the United States is not different from what he did in, um, in Britain. It's just a continued development. It, it started yes. what, with he, many of his techniques that he did back in the day. He still did. It's just, he continued to build on them. And as you point out, it's these films, particularly in the fifties, the forties, fifties and, early 60s that are the ones that most people remember the most. And as you say, I think it's the kind of thing where uh, it, he developed his way that's that has become, you know, the Hitchcockian method, as you use the term. Um, and the whole thing about the Truffaut uh, Hitchcock interviews that I thought was interesting was is it, it becomes it starts to get into this idea that we can talk about American films 
even though he was an American filmmaker, in a more serious manner. That yes. uh, we don't have to just look at them as pure entertainment. That um, the, the the techniques, the 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 mindset, and many other things, and it's that attitude that uh, we we can study these films and these filmmakers that I think these interviews particularly help to bring up. I, I think that's absolutely right. And again, Truffaut is instrumental because I think you're absolutely right. People. They situate Hitchcock usually in the 50s and after. And in my own discussions with people who are even huge Hitchcock fans, everything seems to coalesce around Psycho, which is 1960, because it's become the beginning of however people want to treat it. The slasher film, uh, it's this great moment where you have popular art mixing with complicated psychoanalytic interests that Hitchcock had, and it becomes a huge success. Um, what people I think don't know and what I think is absolutely true and what you suggest is that Truffaut, again, with a number of these collaborators in France, but also other critics and intellectuals, I think they have a major hand in suggesting that American cinema can be a serious art form. That really is not the orthodoxy or that's not the norm in the decades of the 20s, 30s, and 40s. It's what happens afterward when. For example, Eric Romer with uh, the journal uh, Cahiers de Cinema will publish a series of work on Hitchcock. This was really, nobody was doing this in, for example, 1945. There were occasional references to Hitchcock, but the level of analysis and then celebration of this voice or this unique individual vision occurred later and usually coalesced around, you're right, the American films. They are a continuation of what he did in Britain. But the only thing I would add is there's a clear translation into an American context. One of the things I love about Hitchcock is for a British filmmaker, he seems obsessed with a kind of American identity or sort of transatlantic connection between the British and the American. Um, the other thing is he enters the studio system. And from the minute he hits the ground with David Oselznik on Rebecca, he's looking at bigger budgets, more elaborate scripts, um, and he has to work within the studio. Um, one of the arguments I make in the book is what's so stunning is I think he remains committed to what he calls pure cinema which he traces back to his early silent work and all of those influences. But he does it in an industry where he has to make a profit. If he doesn't make a profit, nobody will let him make movies. That's the unique challenge. It's a marvel to me that he even got a film like Vertigo made, to be honest. I still look at it and think, who let you make this film? The other thing I found interesting about Hitchcock uh, in especially, well, not just his current but or his older ones, but his right through is that he is one of those uh, um, writers or excuse me, filmmakers. And I can think of another one is Kubrick, who will tend to take books or sources that aren't necessarily anything special. Uh, yes. they, they are might be pot boilers mysteries or they might be uh, other kinds of things or not very well known and he completely changes them he, he builds up the original material he doesn't he likes to to take or material that's already been written as opposed to coming up with ideas completely from scratch but he changes them so much that you know, he takes the best out of that material, and that's the way with it is with most of his. I mean, if you look at his filmmaking, so many of his films are based on other like novels and such, but they bear little or no resemblance. But it's the same idea that he takes something that is on a written page and completely translates it into a com is into a completely different format. Yes. And I think in addition to that, he takes the ideas that I think he believes can work cinematically. Right. He's almost never interested in thematic complexity. I mean, he's so interested in that way, he doesn't follow that line of either British or American filmmakers, who I think became increasingly interested in complex ideas, complex themes, complex representations of social life. Hitchcock seems to take source material, as you say, and this is very much like Kubrick. I think the comparison is absolutely on the mark. Um, 
and he takes out of it what he thinks can become cinematic because ultimately he wants to show I am the greatest filmmaker in this medium. I can take that, the medium of cinema and push it as far as I want. I just need to hang it on some kind of plot structure and he will steal that from almost anything. So let's get into this concept of pure cinema since this is coming out of the interviews. In fact, it was in the interviews that Hitchcock said uh, a possibility of doing a purely cinematic film. So the idea of pure cinema comes from there. How do we define as best as we can, at least in a short form, what do we what what does Hitchcock and based on that you believe is pure cinema? Okay, I, look, that's the complicated and intriguing question that drove me for a few years. Um, and you'd think I'd have a really good answer at the end of a book, right? Um, my, okay, let's take the first part of your question first. In the simplest and most complete sense, Hitchcock says there is a huge break between the late silent era period and the coming of what was called the talkies, the coming of sound cinema. And just kind of a quick historical digression, it's important for people to realize that sound in, synchronized sound in movies, so being able to record, for example, a dialogue like we're having here, emerges around 19, late 1926 through 1927. By 1931, and certainly into 1932, cinema is considered a sound medium. So it's, it's almost impossible for us to transport ourselves into the time of, let's say, 1925 when artists, filmmakers, intellectuals, playwrights, um, philosophers were all thrilled with this idea of cinematic art. It's amazing the degree to which, for example, musicians and composers wanted to work with this new form of cinema. But all of them were thinking about cinema as a silent art form. It had accompanying music, but it certainly did not have sync sound, synchronized dialogue, conversational sound. When that happens, Hitchcock, quite early, about as early as 1933, is already starting to announce in talks and in interviews and even in bits of writing, something has been lost. He's not the only person who says it. René Claire, for example, in France says it. Germain Dulac talks a bit about this. Um, something has been lost. So for Hitchcock, what has been lost is all of the potential of the visual form. For example, moving a camera or setting up elaborate kinds of movement structures in a frame, or building a set such that you have really complex depths of field and, and using focus in that way. Hitchcock says all of those unique potentials of cinema that had never been in any other art form are killed off because all anyone gets interested in is putting two or three people on the screen and listening to what they say. Movies immediately for Hitchcock become dialogue driven. Everything's about let's just do an establishing shot and go straight into the dialogue because that tells us what's happening. So he says, look at people like Murnau, F.W. Murnau in German Expressionist Cinema um, of the 20s. They did not contemplate cinema at all in that way. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Hitchcock says that is the purity of cinema and something came that kind of corrupted it. It, in fact, changed what the art form was. That's the sort of simple uh, definition. And Hitchcock will say, I continue to pioneer this openness and the potential of visual form. Uh, and he says those are two things. How do I look at a frame as full of potential in terms of choreography and positioning? Let, and, and, you know, we call that generally mise-en-scene, what is in the frame. The other big thing for Hitchcock is silent cinema teaches us how to edit for suspense, for energy, for feeling and emotion. The minute you bring in talkies, we lose the editing. Everyone just wants to shoot dialogue. So he says editing becomes boring. Montage, the way you cut things together, becomes so formulaic and so repetitive that the art of pure cinema is lost by about 1935. This is the argument he would make. He says that he continues the art of pure cinema in all of his own work. And for me, the great achievement of Hitchcock is to take a film like, uh, you know, I could say anything, but let, let's say Psycho. He shoots the shower scene murder, which becomes a famous hallmark of his cinema for the rest of his career. But if people go back and watch that scene, 
I guarantee you turn off all the sound and you are watching silent cinema. It's astonishing to look at the intricacy of the cutting and of the mise-en-scene. And that's very much Hitchcock. Um, and he brings in the Bernard Herrmann strings uh, for effect, which again, if you look at silent cinema, those sorts of things are happening. So that's my answer in terms of what Hitchcock thought. I suppose I take it one step further where I am trying to understand, but what do you mean by purity? Was cinema ever a pure thing at all? Because we know it came out of the theater. We know it came out of spectacle shows, vaudeville and so on. Um, I have this larger argument, and this is the argument made through Brian De Palma, that pure cinema is an attempt to take what you're shooting, the reality of what's in front of you, and make it cinematic, make it artistic. So subdue everything to the control of the camera, the control of visual form, more and more elaborate and dissonant sound structures. And in the end, my kind of punchline to the argument is that pure cinema is all about fragments that sit together and don't create any kind of holistic world, um, which is, to be honest, what we take cinema to be. And one of the things, just to add on to what you've already said concerning silent film, back then, yes, there may have been musical accompaniment, but very seldom was that musical accompaniment put together by the filmmaker. That was right. often just put there to have something going on in the background. And we occasionally, over time, it would become more important during the late silent period. But generally speaking, that music wasn't really meant to particularly add or subtract in any way, shape or form what's going on on the screen. So obviously the screen was the most important. You couldn't help but focus on the screen because that's all you had. Yes. And you're right. And it, it would only be interrupted occasionally with an intertitle. But if you watch the classic silent cinema, even the stuff in America, when Murnau comes to America and shoots Sunrise, um, the intertitles are not really, they're not as present as dialogue will become in the cinema when the talk is come. And so you are really engaging with a visual form that I would say is much nearer to the evolution of visual art than it is to the evolution of, for example, dramatically structured dialogue that we might take out of theater. So certainly the, the early silent masters, you know, to quote Hitchcock in a couple of places, uh, they thought of cinema as coming out of this incredibly rich and fertile and contentious era of the new space of visual art in what I would call, I guess, um, modernism, the era of aesthetic modernism, where there was so much experimentation with what visual form could be. People like Murnau, Delac, to a degree, Hitchcock in his British films, they just saw themselves in that in that lineage, they were they were experimenting in the same way that, um, you know, uh, uh, Rene Clair was experimenting in early in his in his silent cinema work. And as you as you see with with Hitchcock, uh, in particular, especially as you get into these um, more re the, the, the later films in the fifties, The Rear Window, and 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 so on, he tends to use the same actors and people a lot. And I think that's partly to me, at least it's because he feels like they seem to fit best into what he's trying to do. Um, yes. And of course, Hitchcock has his themes, the themes of the everyman. And probably that's Jimmy Stewart in many ways is, is the everyman in yes. other films as well. So I think in some ways uh, Hitchcock clearly spotted him and then some of the other people who he used regularly, but his setups he, he, you can tell, I mean, looking at the beginning of Vertigo, the first five minutes or so of Vertigo, there's virtually no dialogue. Yes. I mean, it's, you know, except for give me your hand. And then other than that, I mean, that whole first scene, I mean, and you don't really know for sure at first what that all was, what was going on. And then he has the long section where Jimmy Stewart and, and Barbara Belgetti sit, sit there and talk about it. And you get, you finally fill in the rest of the story, what's going on, but it's almost like, he considers that, okay, I have to put that in there just to get my explanations out of the way. But yes. that's less important to that than, than that first scene, which theoretically, based on the way it was put together, was pure cinema. I agree. And I also think that Hitchcock at times, when I watch his films, that example from Vertigo 
is is fantastic and he does that so well in rear window where he virtually sets up the entire scenario with a moving camera around the room um you know just so completely visually oriented that i think when he does get into the exposition of story and character uh those are for hitchcock the least interesting parts of the film and those at times seem to me the parts of the film where he seems less committed so you know, the, uh, and often uh, a, a discussion that often comes up is what would Psycho be if there wasn't that huge expositional resolution with a psychiatrist at the end? And that is a, a moment of revelation of that tension, I think, between Hitchcock's deep commitment to this visual form and this artistic form where he would, he would use music. And he would use sound in such a way that would be imitated and enriched and developed for several decades. But at the same time, he's working within a studio system. He's working within a production industry and he has to explain what's going on. I can't help thinking that if that scene is chopped out of Psycho and all we have is the move from the revelation of the skeleton on the, on the chair to that astonishing move into the room with Anthony Perkins now as mother. And I do a reading in the book of the atonal score of Bernard Herrmann, which is so unusual in cinema of this period. I can't help thinking if that's the way Psycho concludes, then it would be a genuine companion piece to Vertigo in this part of his career that maybe would redefine so much of what would happen in American cinema. And of course, the as you talk about that last scene with the camera coming in and the famous and that people don't always see when we suddenly get the skull appear over Anthony Perkins' right. face very briefly and very delicately or, or vaguely, but it's there. And mm. I think there, that's, that's where you see the, 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 the cinema part because there's no other way that you can show that but by showing it. You couldn't put Absolutely. that together any other way. Di- there's no, no amount of dialogue that could describe that. You're right. And if anything, it's a far more evocative and powerful image description than everything that happens in the several mm-hmm. minutes of the psychiatrist trying to explain what's happened to Norman. Right. I don't need to know what happens to Norman in some kind of literal sense. What I want to see is this duality. That's what's so powerful, I think, about the final image of Psycho. (laughs) To go back and reread the one book that there is about that I've enjoyed them about the making of Psycho and come back to reread about that whole scene, because I don't remember exactly why it was there. But uh, it, it most people have felt that it's such a. You know, just takes everything down. I mean, some people say, well, they put that in there just to give everybody a chance to calm down from everything that had gone on yes. before, but you know, it's still the more interesting part. So, um, as you go through the book, obviously you, you talk a lot about the Hitchcockian method. And of course we'll come back to De Palma in a minute because he obviously, as you've pointed out more than once is, is your main focus as far as someone who consciously was a- attempting to continue on with this concept of pure cinema and try to get to that point and forgot this. It was one of the things that De Palma mentions in his documentary, which comes right out of what we've been talking about, is that in many cases, Hitchcock was more interested in the visual. And then he just wrote that he wrote the it was written around to get to that visual. So. I want to have a chase scene. So, but how do we get to that chase scene? That's more, the chase scene is more important than how do we get to it than than the part, the dialogue around it. Or we want to have this great scene at uh, Mount Rushmore. How do we get them to Mount Rushmore? And then that's so much of what Hitchcock did. And De Palma feels like the same thing where I want to show something. How do I get things to that point? That's more, the scene is more important. And all we care about is just the, like you talk about when you get into, to plot, that's when Hitchcock and De Palma tend to just back off a little bit because they don't consider it to be as important. And I think that's where that polarization, both with Hitchcock, even more emphatically with De Palma takes place, which is if you speak to people about De Palma, those who love De Palma think of De Palma, I think, as the great visual stylist or the great oral stylist or someone who's working in a pure cinematic way. 
the people who hate De Palma will almost before they don't even necessarily have to speak specifically about films, but will say De Palma is not interested in plot because his plots don't make any sense. And my re- response to that is. Uh, you're right. De Palma doesn't take usually a classical approach to storytelling. De Palma's films don't always stitch together neatly. So in a film like Carrie, which is based on a novel by Stephen King, he will turn this into one of the most elaborate cinematic shows. Um, And there's nothing in the King novel that says this is what the film should be. But not only that, in the very final scene of Carrie, he will just tag on this completely, I don't want to say nonsensical, but there's this radical ambiguity of um, is Carrie continuing to be terrorized by this trauma or has she mastered the trauma? But he just leaves an image and you don't know how you're supposed to think about that. This is so much De Palma. And for me, that's taking the best of Hitchcock. So films like Vertigo, we could debate, we could spend another hour talking to each other about what's the meaning of that final image when um, when he stands on the top of the, the tower and he's about to fall. How do I interpret that? Because it goes to credits. Or in Psycho, how do I interpret the duality of the, of the image? And again and again, Hitchcock is not going to give us those solutions, particularly the further he goes in his career. De Palma inherits that but intensifies that ambiguity. Such that by the time you get to films like um, Femme Fatale, which is one of my favorites, um, you are really dealing with a kind of storytelling that is almost exclusively anchored in visual and oral style. And of course, that's to a large extent, it's because it got to a point where De Palma said, this is what I want to do because I can't do it the way I was trying to do it. They weren't let me do it. I mean, he would do his, he had a lot of success with many of his films and he obviously the ones where, uh, he was brought on more or less to like mission impossible and untouchables where they weren't necessarily his original ideas, but he was brought in and he was largely allowed to, um, to, put his stamp on them, so to speak, is yep. probably the best way of putting it. A Mission Impossible, if you'd never seen him, if, if you knew Brian De Palma from some of the examples, you wouldn't have had to know that he was the director of that to be able to figure out it was a Brian De Palma film. Absolutely. And- I think that De Palma, Mission Impossible and The Untouchables, so they are the two, let's call them the most mainstream of right. De Palma's career. And certainly Mission Impossible for a moment makes him an A-listed director mm-hmm. for at least another two films. And then unfortunately he stops making as much money, but you're right. I, I, uh, if anyone knows the Palmer's work and even if anyone knows Hitchcock and you put on mission impossible and you watch the Prague scene, I defy you to say, I'm not watching Hitchcock and I'm not watching the Palmer's interpretation of Hitchcock. Um, because what other filmmaker was arranging physical space in such incredibly complex and convoluted ways. I mean, I do a whole discussion of body double and the mall scene, but if I'd had space in the book, I would have done a very close examination simply of movement patterns in the Prague sequence in Mission Impossible, because it's just so masterful. Well, because they, a lot of De Palma's scenes, particularly those kind of scenes when there's not dialogue when it's all visual, um, the scenes in the uh, art gallery and in, in Dress to Kill, the, yes. the, the scene there, as you talk about in the mall, you're meant to be following the visual. And yet there's more there a lot of times than, you know, and it's yes. it, it's a later recap that will sometimes and it, that, that's a pretty regular thing in a lot of his films is that you will eventually get a recap when you suddenly spot something. Oh, I didn't see that the first time. I didn't see that person who happens to be there. I missed that point here and there and and where the rest of the where the rest of the pieces get filled in. Uh, And Um, Palmer's. Yep. I mean, I could uh, I because I like Hitchcock. I can rewatch the Palmer over and over. I can go back to body double and see it differently see it in interesting ways. Um, I can, in the same way that I can watch North by Northwest, if just for the pleasure 
of the intricacy of the of of the visual and the oral style. So, Femme Fatale, you mentioned, is your one of your favorite uh, Brian De Palma films, and in fact, your conclusion for the book is a uh, breakdown of aspects of Femme Fatale. Uh, what were you trying? I mean, obviously, it was. I would assume that the conclusion was meant to try to illustrate your theories or your ideas based on what you talk about through the entire book using an actual film example. What was it about Femme Fatale and this particular parts that you talk about in the conclusion that you considered to be so illustrative of what your whole point was of the art of pure cinema? Great. Thanks for for that, Joel, about Femme Fatale. So I, before I even had the book fully structured, I knew it would end in a very close analysis of Femme Fatale. So in a sense, the whole book was simply an act of getting me to Femme Fatale and that Femme Fatale could bring it all together, so to speak. Um, what I think the poem achieves in that one film, which is 2002, so it's you're right, it's not classic era De Palma. This is not that brilliant moment of the 1980s for De Palma. This is much later when he's already out of favor with most critics. I think what he achieves is he takes the most stripped down formulate plot. He actually calls it femme fatale to signal, I'm going to be riffing on something that's so familiar to you. And he explores uh, a plot that involves a number just of conventional set pieces. So it opens with this incredibly elaborate heist scene. And it's the Palmer saying, I'm going to do the great, I'm going to do a heist from a pure cinema point of view. And then he moves into um, this whole motif of a world being photographed. And it seems to me that Femme Fatale is the Palmer's attempt to treat pure cinema not just in film form. So if you ask the Palmer, give me your examples of pure cinema, he would say, well, watch my movies. And Hitchcock would say something similar. Those are my works of pure cinema. The difference with Femme Fatale is, and this is the argument I make in that final chapter, I actually think he's making a philosophical argument about pure cinema through Femme Fatale itself. So motifs of photography and visual form underpin the entire story. The lead character is a photographer, and he's going to photograph certain things that are going to explain the intersection of all the plot lines all the character lines and the way these worlds connect with each other in story. But um, to be honest, why I think Femme Fatale is so important is it's, it's simply the most elaborate, complex and intricate of his pure cinema works. Um, and so that's why I do very close breakdowns of what he's doing. Um, split diopter images that are a hallmark of De Palma. And I argue that that is what, he takes from Hitchcock and intensifies it. They are just so elaborate in Femme Fatale, the most elaborate split diopter shots and split screenshots, um, the most elaborate use of sound and, 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 and the score to underpin what's going on. And it is a movie that I try to argue is all about fragmentation. And the fact that why a lot of people struggle with Femme Fatale, particularly but who also struggle with De Palma is you're looking for it all to make sense. And ultimately pure cinema is not about sense making. It's about visual patterns and it's about choreography. And, you know, in some of the arguments I make about Hitchcock in films like shadow of a doubt or vertigo I, or North by Northwest, I kind of come to the position that it's really about geometries of form in these visual environments. And I truly believe that if people watch De Palma, not in terms of narrative sense-making, but in terms of a choreographing of visual form, the potential of De Palma as a filmmaker, I think, is, is absolutely unparalleled in, 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 in American Hollywood filmmaking. Yeah, I think the, the, the two things that my memory of De Palma's, of the critics usually with De Palma, it's two things. They, they like using the word derivative. And yes. pointing back to Hitchcock. Um, and they also con they get concerned with the way women are often treated in his films. Yes. Well, 
those are actually things that were also said about Hitchcock as far as that part of it is concerned. But I think it's clear to me, at least, that you're arguing derivative in the sense that you have to start from somewhere, but you build on what's already come before, as opposed to um, just doing the same thing over and over that that we don't don't do automatically the same things that Hitchcock does. We just take some of his set pieces, for example, the, 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 you know, the innocent bystander and similar situations, but you then develop them further. You take them to other steps. You've got to start someplace, but you're not necessarily, you're not just copying, you're developing from. And that's, I suppose that's the foundation of the whole book that I've, I've, I, I want to come to terms with. What does it mean if you, if you're using something, if you're appropriating absolutely the Palmer doesn't, there are no secrets. He's not trying to hide what he's doing. It's a kind of appropriation in plain sight. Okay. So if he does that, why should I see it as a derivative form of work? Because I took the Palmer literally, he actually says in an interview, everybody accuses me of derivative filmmaking, but I would like to think that my career and certainly the, the, the Hitchcock films that I tried to make were about taking Hitchcock further. He doesn't say that I only did this as an homage because I love Hitchcock. The Palmer never says that. Of course, he admires Hitchcock, but that's not why he made six or seven films that are so closely modeled on Hitchcock. What he says is, I looked at what he did and I wanted to take it further. And that's, I suppose, the basis of my argument in the book that Hitchcock, he, he, he comes up with this notion of pure cinema, which he appropriates himself from the avant-garde in Europe. The Palmer appropriates that model of pure cinema, but my argument is he takes it further than Hitchcock. He more successfully intensifies visual form. Visual form in the Palmer, in my opinion, is more intricate than it is in Hitchcock. Montage is more intricate. And I absolutely believe that if you look at the way the Palmer works with sound, uh, there are very few filmmakers that are that attuned to the capacity of the score. And even if you listen to Bernard Herrmann's score for Obsession, which is an early De Palma, which is so clearly appropriating Herrmann's work with Hitchcock, but there's a knowing use of it, a knowing, t- a, a sort of taking it further. Um, so that's that. my position, you know, in the book was very strongly, of course there's, there's a relationship, but we need to understand the relationship from a critical point of view. And not simply kind of take the stand that so many critics have taken, which is he's just replicating what has come before. And that's been so unfortunate, I think, in the reception of De Palma. And then, of course, it's not just the way he uses sound, but the way he uses silence. Yes. I think this is one of my complaints that I, I think the average filmmaker these days have forgotten two things. <laughs> they've forgotten shadow and they've forgotten yeah. silence. And nowadays you see so many films that just don't do a good, maybe it's because everything's digital now, but I mean, they don't do good job of using shadows as well visually. And it's like, it's gotta be not, there has to be noise nonstop and often it's gotta be music. And yet, like we've already, like I mentioned before, but you, you talk about sound a blowout. There's that long scene where he's recording new audio where Travolta's character is is out making new audio and there's no dialogue i mean yeah there's one real quick thing where somebody say what's that guy doing over there but it's all audio and it's almost all silent there's no music it's just there is just so much in that scene that you get the visual part but it's also the sound part has just become so important in that scene because you're it's real life you're absolutely right and how many other filmmakers would do that scene in Blowout, which is all about getting a new sound, but shoot it at such duration, just leaving a person, you know, we know that, okay, there's a big inciting incident coming, a car's going to go off the bridge, but he lets the sound and the idea of sound just wash over the frame for a significant amount of time before any plot material takes place. And um, whenever I teach that, because I've taught that scene and I've shown that scene to students, what I love about it is it's as if he's saying to you, 
when you watch one of my movies, you need to watch very carefully, but you also need to listen very carefully because sound and image in cinema are always experimental spaces. So you never know quite what you're going to get. And one of the things you also get used to with with certain filmmakers and using De Palma's example, you, you hear sounds and you're not automatically sure what you're hearing. It takes you a second or two to figure out. So like, you, for example, he's starting to record and you hear this noise in the background and you don't know what it is. But then he finally shows you. He shows you the frog. Yep. And, you know, now suddenly it's the frog who's croaking. That's the sound you're hearing. Yes. But at first he likes putting foreign sounding things that you're not sure what they are. But then he does tell you or he explains it as you go along. And I think any filmmaker who can and there aren't that many anymore. and but there, there's a perfect example of some of the things where you can use sound. We talked about how silent film depended on the lack of sound. Well, there are times where you can use sound to help to emphasize the the the, the uh, visual aspect. Yeah, and I mean that's I, I you know there's a there's an entire chapter in the book on sound, and it's because for Hitchcock pure cinema of it absolutely came out of this idea of visual form through the silent masters. But certainly where Hitchcock takes sound design, there's an absolutely coherent argument about pure cinema that incorporates both the visual image and the sound. Hitchcock is not thinking of sound as something I tag on. I mean, if you think of the majority of production of contemporary cinema and especially television, I would argue that sound is almost always thought of as a match to the visual image. So I match it because I need to establish continuity for the person to understand what's going on. Very early on in his career, I mean, as early as 1930, I would say, Hitchcock is already showing that sound has an unusually strange and, and, and sort of uncanny relationship to visual form. Sounds don't exactly have to match. Music doesn't have to be complementary. It can be undercutting. It can be subversive. A musical score doesn't have to be accompaniment, it can be a kind of dissonant interruption. And we see really early in Hitchcock that he kind of gets this very quickly uh, in his filmmaking career. Certainly by the time he gets to the States in 1940, um, you can look at sound design in, in films of the 1940s and you can see he's, he's pushing the experimental aspect of sound, perhaps not as much as the visual form, but he's certainly interested in it. And I think part of that also is the idea that the visual doesn't have to represent reality. The yes. visual, in fact, likely doesn't represent reality. I mean, De Palma, the split screens and, and Hitchcock and some of the things he did, they're clearly not meant to be uh, realistic. Yes. But uh, that's the whole idea. I mean, you, if you wanted realism, you know, just go watch a travelogue. Uh, <laughs> we, we want... We want visual for visual's sake. And uh, that's the perfect summation of, I, I think, the argument I was trying to make in the book, that if I could sum up what I think Hitchcock or De Palma or Argento, any of these people thought pure cinema was, the first argument I'd make is this is not a realist cinema. Um, it's so striking to me that many of the American filmmakers that I – love to death and the films that I loved and, and, and kind of returned to of the fifties and sixties became realist forms of cinema and realist forms of, of, of social commentary. Um, and that makes sense because the rise of realism is so striking in the 1940s in Europe and becomes so influential. You can watch Hitchcock through the forties and fifties. And I'm convinced he is not interested in the capacity of cinema to show you the reality of an environment. I'm convinced he's not interested in that. He's interested instead in saying, give me the raw material of the world and I'll make it look cinematic for you. How many other filmmakers were saying that in the 1950s and 60s? 
Yeah, I mean, any you know, people talk about some of the trick movies he made, like Rope, where the idea yep. was to try to pretend like it was one long film, and and yes. you get a. I mean, although recently we just had a filmmaker do it with 1917, he wanted to make a That's film right. that, that was completely through uh, through film. So it's not an idea that's not been done before. But uh, even those kind of films, which some people could say were gimmicky. He's still he's experimenting with the form. He's trying to see, okay, how can I do this so that you get the pure sense of continuation? You know, the whole film takes place in this short period of time. And we've seen filmmakers do that where they try to have the entire the action takes place in the same amount of time it takes to make the film for the film to run. And yet Hitchcock felt that that was something he wanted to play with to see what he could do with it. I agree. And uh, I think there's, there's, there's such a clear distinction in how a film like 1917 looks in its sort of single, I mean, it's not really a single take because it's digital, but at the same time in how it looks and feels and its relationship to reality, um, there's such a distinction between that and what Hitchcock does in Rope. Because yes, Rope is an attempt at configuring one long take. That said, it is still a cinematic take. He's still moving the camera in a highly, highly orchestrated, extremely exhibitionistic ways. I think when Sam Mendes comes to 1917, his entire gambit is, I'm going to show you war in a way that's never been this realistic because I'm never going to cut. Hitchcock, I think, would never have said something like that. He would never even have thought of a physical environment in those terms. I think what I think that's the other thing I talk about, you know, lack of shadows, lack of lack of interesting silences. And I think the last thing is the long take. I, yeah. I think long takes are just so spectacular. So they are the epitome of visual. I mean, when you think about it, you have you have to create a shot that lasts for a while and you have to keep it interesting and you can't depend on just dialogue to carry it. You've got. And to. that's. That's exactly it. Um, this is why so many filmmakers that were in, uh, who wanted to speak back to Hitchcock and wanted to use Hitchcock, um, would would would, act, would experiment with things like long takes. Long takes were considered uh, twofold. One, they could show reality. Lots of filmmakers did that. But then, if we look at people like Scorsese. Um, there's such an orchestration to the long take. There's such an obvious cinematicality to the long take. Um, and we see this increasingly, I think, because digital technology means you can kind of make anything a long take, right? You can, you can shoot a hundred scenes and stitch them together in post-production and tell everyone it's a long take. Well, of course, my favorite long take of all time is the opening of The Godfather. That is one of the greatest long takes ever. And you just sit there and you keep watching it and you keep saying, OK, when's he going to break? When's he going to yep. break? And yep. It doesn't until yes. it. it I, I don't even know how long, but I mean, and it's mostly silent. I mean, yes, you have the dialogue, but all you hear is the one person talking. There is no out, outward sound. It's just that right. one voice. And the level of shadow in the scene, right. which holds it all together and kind of immerses you in such an intense space right. um, is, is obviously so legendary as well in that scene. Well, I didn't want to forget the, the, the Jalo productions. And I even asked to make sure I pronounced it the way <laughs> I thought I had it right. And we've pretty much ignored it, but uh, let's real quickly make sure, because it's an important also part of the book where, you talk about people like uh, a number of these other filmmakers, including Dario Argento and, and some others, and the idea of well, of the Italian mystery fictions, um, yes. which is what Giallo is supposed to represent. And they have similarities with Hitchcock as far as the kind of films he would make where so many of his films are mysteries or crime or, or, or espionage, you know, those those kind of issues. So um, I hate to, to say briefly, but we, I don't want to forget them completely. Let's, you know, yeah, no, where were the Jallos? How do you see those as far as representing this art of uh, pure cinema? Well, I, so the Giallo comes out in Italy at a very particular time, you know, 19... It's 1960, really, early 1960s. And I, I became extremely interested in filmmakers like, uh, particularly Italian filmmakers. So 
arguments I've made elsewhere are about the fact that there's a very unique stylistic obsession amongst Italian filmmakers in, I think, the 60s and 70s. I don't know what it is about the Italian filmmakers. That includes directors and cinematographers and editors. Um, the Giello is a kind of genre film, which I'm going to say is something like an early form of the slasher film. And it clearly takes aspects of Hitchcock. So chases, suspense scenes around predators, for example, violence that is done in particular ways, but usually in extremely elaborate and excessive ways. And I use the Giello as a kind of intermediary between Hitchcock and De Palma. And the overarching argument is that while De Palma really attains that sort of artistic and philosophical um, sophistication, the Giello is this really important tradition in Italian cinema. Dario Argento becomes probably one of the most noted stylists of cinema and visual stylists of anybody in the history of Italian cinema. And so I look at uh, Argento, some of my favorite works of his, so films like Deep Red, um, Suspiria, which many people will know. But if you go and look at his very first film, Bird with a Crystal Plumage, you can already see he's speaking back to Hitchcock. And he's starting to show you what people like the Palmer would do in another decade. So I, I trace this pure cinema idea from Hitchcock to the Italian Giello and then into the Palma. And the good thing is many of those films are, they're very accessible because their, their themes are not unusual in the sense. And, and, and so the idea of seeing some of these films as, as a way to continue this, or, you know, De Palma's films are probably for the average English speaker, obviously, are more obvious, but especially in America, where sometimes it seems like if it's not made in America, we don't want to watch it. Um, but these kind of films, they have enough similarity to the kind of typical film you might get, especially yes. for the time period. But they still uh, are made by a different in a different country where. Uh, you've got people who are trying to do similar things where they want to play with the, with the format. Yeah. And I would encourage people who, who maybe if, if people don't know those films um, to, to have a look at something like Suspiria. Uh, it was recently remade. I thought it was a really good remake, um, challenging remake of Suspiria. Um, Deep Red is a 1975 Argento film. And to just have a look at them as works of incredibly sophisticated filmmaking. Uh, they, again, have that hallmark of unconventional, at times, nonsensical plot making uh, or plot structure. But to have a look at them as, as, as works of cinematic virtuosity, I suppose that's the best way I can put it. Right. Well, as I say, this was... <laughs> Because, I mean, it worked in a manner, you know, when I get lists of when I get examples of books to look at, I'm always looking for something that jumps out at me. And the fact that you were that that you were a champion of De Palma helped, but also <laughs> Hitchcockian, because right. like I say, I think Hitchcock is one of those filmmakers you can study forever. And as you point out, certain filmmakers, you can watch their films multiple times and see something different all the time. And I think Hitchcock is a perfect example of that. But um as I say, I, I found the book. And like I said before, it was the fact that your first line is, this is not a book about Hitchcock. I said, okay, yes. there we go. Now, here's somebody who's who's going <laughs> to create that. an argument. He's going to create his argument around something which is included in his title. So, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I got to say, in addition to that, uh, a lot of people and even Oxford were at times concerned by my use of the word imitators. But I think when they saw what I was trying to do, they saw that I was using imitation, not as a derivative form of, 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 of theft, of stealing, mm -hmm. but imitation as something that you take and then you expand on and you right. deepen. So the, 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 I, I, it's absolutely not a book about Hitchcock. It's a book about how uh, Hitchcock is so fundamental to a lot of what came later. Right. Well, um, I hope that... Uh 
you continue to have success with your with the, with this book. I, I don't know how many. When did it come out exactly this year? I think a couple of months ago, maybe. Okay. Well, like I say, I hope people reach out for the book because there is so much in there that, and especially, I I would say, especially if you're someone who doesn't completely quote unquote get to Palma, I think he deserves the uh the you know the defense you give him. Um, no matter what, I mean, I, he probably would say, I don't need anybody defending me. And that's true. But like I say, I, I think as a filmmaker, uh, he deserves the, the, uh, the study just like, uh, Hitchcock and many of these other filmmakers. So I think that was one of the other reasons the book jumped out at me as something that I think that I was particularly interested in. But, uh, so I hope, uh, the, the book does well. I hope you continue to have success with with your with your work and whatever you're planning to do next as far as whether you've got something in mind or whether you're just sort of sitting back now just thinking about what you want to do next um i'm i'm working on a few things i have a visual essay segment i do for an online journal called the conversation because my true interest is visual form Mm -hmm. i just recorded one for them on zombie films yesterday uh, so that comes out once a month. So if people are interested in that, just type in my name with the conversation. It's this big platform in, um, in Australia, but it gets a huge international audience and I do visual analyses. So what is interesting about any scene, a scene in Goodfellas or a scene in a rom-com. And I, and I, and I, and I'm trying to, sh- pro- I'm trying to prove to people you can take any five or two minute segment on the film and you can subject to intense rewarding analysis. So I do that. Um, I'm also launching a podcast soon called Film Versus Film in October, uh, which I'm excited about. But my academic project currently is on action cinema. I'm trying to understand the moment of what I'm calling um, the modern action film. Isn't that what we only get? (laughs) It sometimes feels (laughs) that way. I, I want to find out what the seeds of it are and how some of what was at that moment of germination has continued and, and become really rich. And then where all of these other contaminations have taken place into new forms of sort of hypermedia and things that I'm interested in. Well, this was a great conversation. As I say, I, I appreciated the book in the first place. And I think you did a wonderful job of, of really giving it its proper due and your subjects. So I really appreciate the time you gave me, Bruce, and I hope continued success. Thank you so much, Joel. It's been lovely talking to you. A really great, interesting conversation. Thanks. Thanks to Bruce Isaacs. I think that Bruce's book will give you a new way to look at both the films of Alfred Hitchcock, as well as those who came after him, who also believed in the idea of pure cinema. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books and film a podcast series on the New Books Network.